Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 434, Red Beach, To Move is to Die. Last time, the South Saskatchewans and the Camerons landed at Green Beach at Portville, just to the west of Dieppe's perimeter. Some had done well, others didn't even get the chance. But two things were now clear. First, the tanks were not coming from Dieppe, and the commandos and regular troops did not have the firepower to overcome set German defenses. Still, there remained a chance, of a limited success, as the Essex Scottish and the Rileys approached red and white beaches directly in front of Dieppe. With them would go the way of Jubilee. And here, like at other landings, the Essex, Scottish, and the Rileys landing at red and white beaches, respectively, were on time, touching ground at 5.20 a.m. And as they landed, shells from the destroyers behind them were giving the Axis defenders hell, or at least, that was the hope. And just as the Scottish and the Rileys landed, all the action was currently over their head, but not just from the destroyer's shells. C&C Fighter Command Trafford Lee Mallory was determined to own the skies for this short-lived operation. Thus, the east and west headlands, plus the gun batteries behind the town, were to be bombed, while others laid smoke. No sense in making it easy for the Germans to shoot down the planes. At 5.09, just before the infantry hit the beaches here, 10 twin-engine Boston bombers of 226 Squadron flew over the east headland and dropped 100-pound smoke canisters. After that, the Bostons kept flying south to then hit the battery on the clifftop, but not with smoke canisters, but something much more deadly, if their aim was true. And yet, the smoke had not had time to drift to the clifftop, so once the bombers dropped their ordnance, it was the turn of the enemy AA guns below. Nine British aircraft were hit during this first pass. This did not bode well. One of the crew of the bombers believed that the enemy had radar-controlled lights. As he said later, the searchlights came into operation at the same time as the AA batteries opened fire. We were about 10 seconds from dropping point. We were picked up by what we assumed was the main searchlight, possibly radar-controlled, as it came straight up at us and held us without any searching. Also over the main beaches were five hurricane squadrons. As it was still too dark to spot actual batteries, the hurricanes, each armed with four 20mm cannon, simply lined up wing-to-wing and delivered a volley of fire on the headlands and the seafront, hoping for a hit. So it should come as no surprise that few, if any, German AA batteries were hit at this time, which helps explain their organized response when they opened up. Canadian pilot Flight Sergeant Hank Wick of 43 Squadron went down and was the first airman to die that day, but it was a bit different for the pilot officer A.E. Snell, also of 43 Squadron. His plane was hit, forcing him to bail out. Fortunately, he would be picked up by an LCT, or landing craft tank, and spent that day not in a cockpit, but in a boat, but still manning a machine gun. This was the beginning of the greatest air clash thus far in the entire war, and it went on for 16 hours, with the Allies sending over 3,000 sorties in that 16-hour period, 
compared to the Germans' 945, but obviously they were much closer, and much would fall from the sky on this day. As for the Essex, Scottish, and the Rileys, things started out well enough. After all, the Germans on the clifftops were too occupied, what, shooting at the fighters and bombers, and then there were the guns of the destroyers, like the Berkeley, the Bleasdale, Garth, and Alberton. A target-rich environment, as the saying goes. And it will come as no surprise, given the amount of fire coming at the buildings that the German gunners were in, soon three of those structures were wrecked. Though Southeastern Command Leader Bernard Montgomery was no longer involved in Jubilee, his liaison officer, Garonwe Reese, was aboard the Garth and noted how well things seemed to be progressing. But in hindsight, that might be a comment on the amount of noise all the Allied weapons were making. The real question was how many enemy troops were dying or how many enemy guns had just been knocked out. At this point, the answer to both was not much. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. What was to happen next was all about timing. The shelling and bombs dropped would continue until the Canadians landed, and right after them, the LCTs would drop off the tanks, and they would take over and do the heavy lifting, firing on the pillboxes and other enemy fortifications. And once the beach was secure, the LCTs, still on the water's edge, would begin blasting whatever obstacles the enemy had that stopped said tanks from entering Dieppe proper. But all this had to work out, and smoothly, because when the planes and ships stopped shooting at the Germans, they, the Germans, would begin firing on the infantry running at the beach. All that was needed was a coordinated handoff from the naval and air units to the tanks, and done so perfectly. The first three LCTs, carrying nine tanks, were to touch soil at 5.20 a.m., but they dropped their bow door at 5.35 a.m. From the moment that Jubilee was over, this 15-minute delay would be hashed, rehashed, and used to explain why the operation overall failed, which is a lot for this one mistake to carry. And it was a mistake, regardless of the how or why. 
In time, the Admiralty would put down the cause of this delay as navigational difficulties. But now that the tanks were here, let's see what happened. Inside each tank was a team of five, commander, gunner, loader-slash-radio operator, driver, and co-driver-slash-hull gunner. There were at least two types of tanks coming off the LCTs, the Churchill Mark I, which had a 40mm or 2-pounder, and a 303 machine gun in the turret, and in the hull, a 3-inch howitzer. Then there was the Mark III, with a 57mm or 6-pounder as its main gun. Their presence gave the Canadians hope and relief. And it was Brigadier General Clarence Churchill Mann, the Deputy Military Force Commander, on board the HMS Fernie that believed these tanks would create a shock that could have a terrific moral effect on the Germans. But that remained to be seen, as this was the first test for these tanks and in these conditions. So the LCTs were running behind, and the first two flights of six LTCs landed but 10 minutes apart from each other. All told, they had 18 tanks, and if things went right, these tanks could compensate for their lateness. But again, the Germans had been keeping their heads down. When the tanks reached shore, the enemy opened up with everything they had. As Sergeant John Marsh, in command of a Black Watch detachment, would write, letting the ramp down seemed to be a signal for all hell to let loose. Enemy mortar and shell fire seemed to hit us on all sides, and tracer and explosive bullets were sweeping the decks and coming in around us. It seemed ages until the ramp was finally lowered onto the beach. Marsh kept describing the tank's efforts unfolding in front of him. The first tank was immediately hit three or four times, but it kept going, which is why Churchill's were included in the raid. Marsh watched as the tank rolled over the concertina rolls of barbed wire, unaffected. Unfortunately, just after the tank passed over, the wire retook its original shape, which is why barbed wire is included in anti-amphibious landings. Soon, the tank crew spotted the source of their irritation. There was a French tank stuck in a shell to the east end of the promenade at the top of the beach. The tank on the beach fired back, and as the French tank exploded into pieces, this was taken as a sign by the men that all would be well. Matching this initial success, a second tank unloaded and went directly for a pillbox to the left of the first. Those inside the pillbox guessed what was about to happen, so exited the structure precipitously. Not that it mattered, as the tank's machine guns made them drop mid-run. If Marsh was wondering would the third tank have an equal impact on the battle, he would have to wait until later to find out. As the third tank was coming off, Marsh could see a wireless radio-equipped scout car behind it. Clearly, the tank was going to tow the car off the beach and then separate it. But both vehicles got stuck, so the LCT's captain had the engines reverse to shake them loose. But then a few German shells came along and did the job for him. Now unencumbered, the tank took off, pulling the car behind, unable to resist. The last thing Marsh saw of this tank and the car was that it was tearing like hell up towards Foch Boulevard. This same LCT, number two, that Marsh was on, had taken a few hits, then a few more, 
More besides, the bow door was now bent and under the vessel. The captain backed up, but not before some twenty men died from various German pieces of metal. Marsh and another manned the last two two-pounder Borfors guns that were still operational. LCT-2 got away, but the ship was a wreck. The survivors were dazed, yet it could have been much worse. To be sure, the LCTs, being 160 feet long, made easy targets, and only parts of the ships were armored. So LCT-1, though it got its tanks on shore, soon sank, and it would be joined by a tank from LCT-3 that went down the ramp prematurely. Soon the next flight of LCTs came, and most managed to get their tanks unloaded though another sank in the water and a second of that LCT did not leave its place for some unknown reason. The Calgary Tank Regiment, officially the 14th Army Tank Regiment, had Colonel Johnny Andrews as its commander. He came in with a third flight of LCTs, specifically LCT-8. The good news is that Andrews' LCT arrived on schedule at 6.05 a.m., The bad news is that the tank got partly off the LCT, but then it was stuck in the flat beach pebbles. The more the driver gunned it, the more the tank dug in. Then a few German rounds came along and loosened everything up, to the point that the tank Andrews was in rolled off the ramp and soon was in eight feet of water. Now, the Churchills were waterproof, but only up to six feet. Andrew and the crew abandoned ship, or rather, tank. The CO managed to climb aboard a small craft nearby, but now that he did so, he was literally head and shoulders above everyone else in the water, and he soon paid for that with his life. Andrews would have been proud to know that of these three flights, 27 of the 30 tanks made it to shore which is pretty impressive, as disembarking these beasts while being fired at was an achievement. Of course, there was still the matter of the seawall and the other roadblocks between the tanks and the entrance to the town. The operation needed those tanks to keep moving. The infantrymen around them needed it even more. And who would be breaking through that seawall and the roadblocks? That would be Major Bert Sukharov of the Royal Canadian Engineers, and with him, were four officers and 84 men, protected by two infantry platoons. It would be this crew that would be broken down into teams and put aboard the first six LCTs. The idea was for these teams, and everything they had with them that they could possibly need, to get ahead of the tanks, in teams of four, and lay down chest pollen, 25-foot-long rolls of chestnut slats in the shape of a picket fence, This would give the armor and scout cars something to grip and push off of. And here, the engineer and tank crews got not one, but two lucky breaks. First, one of the things they carried with them was timber to build ramps, so the tanks could literally be driven over the seawall, which some reports said was six feet high. Imagine that for a second. But not the entire wall was six feet high. In some places... It was only two feet high. And second, as the Germans considered the beach impassable by any vehicles, and they were right due to what the French called calette, the flat stone pebbles that moved when pressed by foot or tread, there were not hundreds of mines along this beach. So the good news was that 
no ramps needed to be made and installed, and no mines had to be found and removed. The bad news was that many of the engineers were dead within minutes of hitting the beach, as the enemy had, in front of the promenade, been well covered. More specifically, between the enemy fire and the galet, or G-A-L-E-T-S, the smooth pebbles, only half of the 350 engineers and half of the demolition teams were dropped off, and in the next few minutes, 90% of them were dead or wounded. So, of the 27 tanks that made it ashore, they moved forward, unaided by infantry or rolls of chestnut slaps. And somehow, somehow, 15 of those tanks reached the seawall and rammed through the two-foot sections. The rest of the tanks were either taken out by German tread shots or the French stones that got within the treads and made the tank immobile. During the third flight, LCT-7 among them dropped off their tanks, one of them being called Bellicose, as each tank had a name. Trooper Archie Anderson within Bellicose was already panicking as his leader, Lieutenant Edwin Bennett, had been burned by an enemy shell that hit them when they came ashore. Bennett whispered through his pain to keep the tank close to the water as he saw what was happening to the other tanks floundering around. And some of the tanks did make it to the promenade, that is, the area between the beach proper and the city. The access points were still blockaded. And as the tank crews had no engineers, they weren't going much further. But wanting to do something for the infantry and surviving engineers, the tanks started roaming back and forth on their side of the promenade, firing all their guns at anything, anything that moved, to help reduce the number of enemy troops. So how did the Essex Scottish fare during all this? As the men came off to their craft, they saw the seawall ahead of them, and only one word came to their mind. Safety. But first things first. As they moved forward, the rolls of concertina wire before them commanded their attention away from the wall. The first men to hit the wire started cutting. But this was taking too long as men began to fall to German bullets, which drove Private Tom McDermott crazy. So, he ran forward and dove on the rolls to turn his body into a bridge. The men nearest him stepped on him and ran for the wall. But the simple fact was that the Essex Scottish were severely whittled down before reaching that seawall. Captain Dennis Guest, the A Company commander, had only counted 35 men when he knelt down at the wall. He had started with 108. For Captain Donald McRae, it was almost as bad, having lost 40% of his men before the beach was covered. As for the two brigade commanders, they had it the same. 4th Brigade Commander Sherwood Lett never made it to shore, having been hit on the way in. 6th Brigade Commander Bill Southam made it in on LC-9, but was unable to alter the chaos around him. The man that carried his map case, Lance Corporal Leo Leckie, got separated from Southam, but soon came upon an officer who had had his arm blown off. The officer used his remaining hand to cover the stump, as if his remaining limb held healing powers. And the wounded man was saying something. Leckie moved in closer. Get off the beach. It's murderous. Try to get to the seawall, was all the man would say which speaks to the training and constant drills the men were forced to endure. 
Brigadier Southam reached an armored scout car. He took the radio. He was standing outside of the armored vehicle because the two men inside would not come out to give him space, not even under orders. The radio of the scout car belonged to the Calgary tanks. Southam tried to bring order to the landing, but it was simply out of everyone's hands, except the Germans. The commanding officer of the Essex Scottish, Fred Jasperson, was quickly pinned down on the beach with his staff. And looking at the ground below him, Jasperson figured out very quickly the good and the bad of the smooth shells. He put his hands together and in seconds had begun digging a hole. He jumped in and he kept digging. This kept him alive for the immediate future. Of course, he could not see the battle around him to give orders. He could not even raise his head. Not that it mattered, as the vast majority of his radio men either had a bullet in them or in their radio. Soon, Commanding Officer Jasperson would be a POW, and he would write of his own experience about seeing a man with a missing arm. But when it happened, he was hit by a mortar shell. Jasperson was only six feet away from him. After the explosion, Jasperson got up and realized he was covered in blood. It took him a few seconds, but he realized the blood wasn't his, but the man's with the missing limb. He ended this diary entry with, How I was missed? God only knows. It all will be imprinted on my mind forever. True enough, the question was, how long would his forever be? For the men on the beach that were still breathing, the ones that could still think, must have realized Blue Beach was probably a disaster as well. For had they accomplished their missions, the guns on the top of the cliff, giving them hell, would have been taken over by the royals and turned on the Germans. Clearly, that had not happened. Worse still, there were machine gun nests in the cliff face itself, and intelligence reports had missed that by calling them storage areas for torpedoes. But going back to that officer on the water's edge with a missing arm, whispering, get to the seawall. The men at the seawall had been through the same training as him. They knew that immobility was inviting death, whereas movement and momentum brought a chance of living. So it will come as no surprise, or perhaps not, that after resting a few seconds at the wall, they went up and over. Problem was, there were two sets of barbed wire now in front of them, and the second one was 15 feet thick. The men that went over died in seconds. But as the wire was plentiful, they did not fall to the ground, but rather lazily laid on the sharp metal as if just deciding to fall asleep where they were. More men went over the wall, more men died, which only motivated the others behind them to somehow move faster than those who had gone before them. It made no difference. Like on other beaches, Canadian mortar teams sacrificed themselves by coming away from the wall to set up their weapons. They died just as quickly as the wall jumpers. And here, the Essex Scottish's most deadly adversary were the German mortars. One shell took out an entire Canadian mortar team. A rather gruesome report would later say that at least 31% of the Essex were killed by mortar bombs, 
But coming in a close second were the gale, the flat pebbles on the beach that splintered into hundreds of jagged pieces after being hit by a mortar, which meant the Germans only had to come close with their shot. No more. The Essex Scottish, as a unit, were gutted by the wire and the mortar, and there they were stopped. For those still alive in the lee of the seawall, they couldn't move, not out of cowardice, but necessity. To move was to die. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just want to say hello to a new member and thank those who have donated. Let's see. The latest member is Rebecca Schilling from Haywards Heath from West Sussex, UK. Thank you, Rebecca. And as far as those who have made donations, there's Ben Frost. And he had some advice for me in an email or in the message. Thank you very much. And Ben became a member. So, Ben, thank you very much. Then there's Dana Simmons. Uh, Thank you, Dana. And then there's Robin Hope. Robin, thank you for the hope. And finally, Lindsey Brown. So thank you for everyone who has donated, who's become a member, uh, or, or writes me emails telling me about their grandfather or whatnot. I really do appreciate it. So um, the next episode uh, will be coming out probably Sunday or Monday. So I uh, hope you enjoy this. Take care, everyone.